Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Miguel Fernandez. Miguel is the CEO and co-founder of CapChase, which uh, happens to be a Tusk Ventures portfolio company uh, and just fascinating company, fascinating guy and wanted to have him on the podcast. So Miguel, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here, Bradley. So, so you're, uh, you live in New York, but we, we were just sort of talking about Spain um, right before we started this podcast, which is where you're from. What's the tech world like in Spain? Um, well, it's up and coming, right? So I would say there's a lot of very smart people. Um, they're very talented. I think that the the con is that you know the tech world or the, the tech industry hasn't developed so much in Spain over the last like 20 years. It's been much more recent. So if you're looking for a specific talent that has you know 15, 20 years of experience, you know building building software, that is still a bit shallow here. Right, but if you're looking for people with five, seven years of experience, it's it's amazing. Really hardworking people, and and very cost effective as well. Yeah, and and, and creative, right? I mean, over the yeah. course of history, Spain, Spain has done more than pretty well at least a couple of times. Yeah. Um, actually, and Brexit does does the UK leaving the EU help Spain because it sort of concentrates more talent in fewer places, or, or does it not matter? I think what what's helped really Spain has been all this um, remote trend, because mm-hmm. the the quality of life here is parallel right you have like 300 days of sun a very very uh, affordable lifestyle so then you know if people can work from anywhere in the world we are seeing a lot of people coming over to spain and portugal by extension as well uh, yeah. and then they're working from from here so much cheaper countries uh, great infrastructure and amazing lifestyle and see big cities so it's, it's pretty cool and really good food um, so, so you started a couple of companies in Spain, but, but before Cap Chase in the U.S. Um, tell me about them and kind of what went right and what went wrong. Yeah, so the two other companies I started were pretty much, I mean, we, we made most of the mistakes that you're supposed to not make, right? So we did them <laughs> while, we were, uh, part, uh, while we were full-time working in strategy consulting. So that was a demanding job in itself. Yeah. Uh, and we're also, you know, trying to do on the side other ideas. Uh, the other mistake that we did is that we tried to validate the ideas with our networks, you know, with friends, family, and so on. So the ideas were not amazing, but nobody was telling us that. Everybody right. was telling us that the ideas were great because, you know, they didn't want to hurt our feelings. So then the big learning experience that I had in, in entrepreneurship that prepared me for, for CAPTIS was when I joined a pre-revenue SaaS company in Spain as the first person in sales. And then I built and led sales, customer success, and then international for three years in this company. And we took it from zero to a few million, to a few million in ARR. And actually, I experimented most of the pains we're trying to solve now at CapChase. Did, did you start kind of thinking about the idea for CapChase while you were doing these startups, or did that come a little later when you were in business school? It came a little later when we were in business school, as, as you said. Um, but then it all resonated, right? Because we had been experimenting a massive pain in this SaaS business as we grew, you know, like managing our finances, you know, trying to get most customers to pay up front, even when they didn't want to, right? So all of those pains that we're just taking as a given for growing a business, then they resonated um, when we came up with the first idea of Captis, which was effectively, you know, a conversion tool. So a tool to help SaaS companies offer flexible payment terms, but get all the cash up front. And then like everything, that we had suffered in the past resonated and made made the the value probe much more effective to communicate. Yeah. So I, I, obviously, because we're investors. In fact, not only investors, we invested at the Series B, which is usually 
much later than we invest, but we we believe in you and the company that much. Um, tell me kind of what, what, both when's that moment when it all hit you, that aha moment you're like, oh, this is the opportunity. And, and tell me why uh, small, medium-sized businesses haven't gotten the kind of attention that they, they deserve until now. Yeah, well... It's a, it's a few things, right? So I think that the, the realization moment came when we were looking at almost like line by line item of a, of a SaaS company's PL. And we could see that, you know, like the best companies were spending between 50 to 70% of their revenue in sales and marketing activities. Then let's say between 25 to 45% in research and development. And then between 15 to 25% in, in GNA. Right, so then we were seeing that, of course, like they were spending more than they were making. So most of them are burning money; that they're in growth mode. And then we're seeing that, um, you know, there are things that are not predictable, like R and D and GNA. Like you don't know if you spend a ton of money in engineers if that's going to to come back in the form of amazing products. You're basically taking bets all the time. Yep. And on the other hand, everything that you spend in sales and marketing, after you know, after a while, once you've hit product market fit, it is relatively predictable. Right, you can understand how much a customer is costing you. When you sign them up, you can understand how much they're going to pay you. You can model retention. You can do a bunch of things. So then um, that's when 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 we had the realization moment that if you were able to finance that 50%, 70% of predictable spend with you know a very low cost of capital, then you could actually grow a SaaS business very efficiently. And you know, if you could reduce the risk by looking at the predictability of the revenues as well, then you could actually match two predictable things, you know, predictable spend, predictable returns with predictable revenues and build like a, almost like a perfect flywheel to finance the growth of a SaaS business. So when I mentioned that you were in business school, I didn't mention that the school was Harvard and that you dropped <laughs> out. Um, there is this sort of legendary concept in tech of the Harvard dropout who then goes on to found some I- incredible tech company, you know, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, people like that. Um, what's the reality of it? So when you're sitting there and saying, okay, I'm in the most prestigious school in the world, it will clearly lead to all kinds of opportunities. And yet, despite all of that, um, I'm going to choose to leave it to pursue this other vision. What's that thought process like? And like, what'd your parents say? How'd it go? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you hit it right in the head there. So imagine dreaming for your whole life um, to go to to Harvard Business School, right? You know, something that you just almost feel like totally unattainable. You see it in the movies, and then suddenly, like out of you know pure luck, uh, you, you get an offer to go there and, and and a scholarship. So, so, so yeah. And then when you go there, you actually you actually leave, right? So that, that's kind of like the summary of it. Um, what what happened was that we we didn't want to leave. Actually, we thought that we could do both things at the same time, you know, grow a, a successful business very rapidly and finish HBS. But then a couple of things happened. On the one hand, you know, one of our first investors told us that it was much better to be a dropout than a grad to do a startup. <laughs> um, and then that kind of like planted a seed. And then it just, it was impossible to, to do both things at the same time. You know, we're working 18, 20 hours a day in, in CapChase. And on top of that, you know, a few hours at business school. And then we just had to, I mean, we came very quickly to the realization that we had to stop one or the other. And then it became extremely easy to drop out, right? Because it was like, okay, do we drop out of CapChase, you know, once a generation opportunity, or do we drop out of HBS, you know, which you could always go back at some point, right? So right. then, yeah. Right. And what's the point? 
of staying at school to then try to get a job like you already have by founding capital. Mm-hmm. Like I, I teach at Columbia Business School and, you know, my students who take my class obviously are interested in venture, but they're hoping to get a job either at a venture fund or an operations role or a startup. So if it's like, hey, people are willing to fund the startup of which I'm the founder and CEO, <laughs> you know, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you do it? Um, in fact, now that I think about it, we have nine deals that we've done out of Fund Three, and two of the nine are Harvard dropouts. We may be particularly uh-huh. susceptible to that narrative, I think, uh, or maybe I'll just blame it on Jordan and, and not me. Um, <laughs> so, so, so you kind of had this insight. And it feels like the market has validated it pretty quickly in, in terms of growth, in terms of the, the quality of the investors and everything else. Kind of what were the early days like and, and how did you go from this concept of business school to what's now a you know, really successful startup? Yeah, to, to, to be honest, like the, the moment that we started speaking with customers and with founders, they all wanted it even before we raised the first dollar of capital. So um, it, was, it was just a matter of like figuring out how to do it, how to bring it to reality than trying to tinker to find product market fit. So the, the early days, you know, we, we basically there were four founders. And we, we still are four founders, right? We have yep. very complementary skill sets. One is really good at data. The other one is really good at uh, product and, 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 and tech and building. Um, then Shamek, who was also with me at HBS, is very good at ops and finance and capital markets. And, and I mean, my experience previously was in, in go-to-market. So we kind of like complemented yep. or had like the... All the all the the combined toolkit to get something off the ground. I mean, since then, of course, we've we've hired people that are way better than all of us, and all of those other things. But at the beginning, we're able to go in four different, well, you know, in four parallel directions, but on on four different surface areas, and then get very very fast feedback loops. So we could learn a lot in each of those four areas that I mentioned, and yeah, and, and basically get a lot of traction and grow very rapidly, very quickly. So when you guys lend money to your customers, where does that money come from? I assume it's not the actual venture investing. Money. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so to give you an idea, I, I mean, the, the summary is that it comes from from external credit providers. So hedge funds, credit funds, big banks, you know, eventually even the public markets. So what we did at the beginning is we raised a, a seed round of almost $5 million and we very rapidly raised another $10 million of debt. And then we were we started working just like like maniacs on signing our first credit facility, which is a much more scalable way of growing the business than just raising debt on the balance sheet. Yeah. So yeah. so yeah, since then it's been like a, a race to 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 raise larger, cheaper, more flexible credit facilities as we as we grew the number of customers we worked with. Yeah, and and tell me one of the things I know that I, I liked about the deal when we looked at it is it, you guys are a high service, high touch entity with your customers, right? So it feels like what you're doing is you're doing it in a very responsible way. T- tell me what that relationship is like and how you go about it. Yeah, exactly. So so the mission of CapChase is to automate everything that touches a dollar for software businesses. So it's not just about the financing, it's about everything else that that you know SaaS founders have to deal with, you know, revenue management and you know how to invoice and, and when to invoice your customers and then how to collect the money, etc. Right. So um we want to help them in all of these areas until we build the products that automate them. So what we do is every time we start working with a founder, we assign a dedicated person that is just going to guide this founder or their or their finance team through their business decisions. And the thing is that on the one hand, we can get very, very nuanced within a customer's own data. And then also we can apply 
all the collective knowledge we have from all the thousands of companies we've looked at. So when a company comes to Capchase, they can get financing, but also they're going to get a benchmark of how they're doing against other companies of more or less their size and in their and in their own vertical. And then they're going to get insights on what they're doing better, what they're doing worse, and you know, like what they need to focus on in order to, on the one hand, like rank better, and also um, how to use you know the additional funds in the most efficient way to grow faster with a longer runway and to get essentially like less diluted. So, so the founders who are listening to this right now and thinking that sounds pretty good, what's the point in their life where you make the most sense? And then at what point do you say, okay, you've graduated to some other type of financing, commercial financing, you no longer need us? Yeah. So there's an early stage where, where like, you know, like if there are no revenues, Captis doesn't make a lot of sense. Then more than the besides the benchmarking piece of it or, or the metrics piece of it, so so basically you know early stage founders are mostly bootstrapped or, or, or VC backed, and then as they start getting revenues, um, they tap into captives to complement those VC funds or their own funds, right? So we're not substituting VC at all; we're just making it go further, right? And like like make it more powerful. So then um, as companies grow, what, what happens you know, when they get to like series B, C stage is that they start using CAPTIS instead of, you know, as one of the main sources of funds for growth, they start using it as more like a, more like a CAC recovery product, right? Yep. So yep. You, you send up a massive, well, a cohort of customers. And then instead of having to wait for six, nine, 15 months to get paid back, you can just use Capsis to accelerate that payback so that, you know, you can scale indefinitely right. without, you know, having to wait for, for that payback at a core level. So right. then the importance, I would say, decreases relatively to the other sources of funds, but it doesn't really stop. So you're from Madrid, you've worked in Germany, you went to business school in Boston, and yet you choose to live and work in New York. Tell me yeah. what you think of the New York kind of tech culture and why you picked New York over someplace else. Yeah, so we, we picked New York for um, geographic reasons and also for, for, the, for the talent pool and, you know, like for, 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 for the city itself, right? So geographic reasons. We have our engineering team in Europe. So then we just needed, you know, somewhere with a you know, main airport, very easy connections, and also not too far away from, from Europe in terms of time zones. So we could collaborate um, asynchronously, but, but like very quickly with the engineering team. And then from the talent um, pool perspective and, and you know, the quality of, of people and of the city itself, um, we are a fintech company, right? So we have, a, we have some characteristics that a regular SaaS company wouldn't have. We have risk and we have also capital markets um play so you know there, there isn't a place like new york for the capital markets you know every single fund hedge fund you know bulge bracket bank has an office there yeah. and and then also you know there's a big talent pool of you know other people that have worked in other fintechs in the past that we could tap into to accelerate the growth of captives and then of yeah. course the city itself is is really cool and everybody's on a mission to to succeed and to and to progress, and that's that permeates everywhere. So, so let me dig into that a little bit. So, I was talking yesterday. Uh, my background is originally in, in government and politics, as you may know. Uh, I was talking to some friends at City Hall about how they can really court the tech community in New York. You know, when I, when I was Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager, Mike was obviously incredibly aggressive about building a tech sector here. Makes sense. He's a tech entrepreneur. When Bill De Blasio took over, De Blasio like went the other way with it completely. I hate business. I hate technology. 
and just mm-hmm. tried to crack down on them, the new city hall is realizing, wow, there's a lot of potential jobs we could you know, keep or grow for the city if, if we actually are nice to these people. What advice would you give them in terms of either what, what they could do to be helpful to you or on the flip side, what would have to happen here that would make you say, you know what, it's just not worth being in New York? Yeah, well, I think that if you look at um, the hubs, uh, the tech hubs that are coming up in the last couple of years during COVID primarily, um, you're looking at states that have really, really low tax, right? Yep. So like, like yep. Texas and, and Florida. Yep. Um, I would say that the talent pool in in New York is is in parallel, right? Like the you have amazing universities. People really love the city and they want to come and work here. I think that if people are moving from New York to and from a side, you know, to to Austin and Miami and so on, it's, it's you know, heavily influenced by the taxes, you know, when, when teams right. and founders, you know, make an exit or they make secondaries and so on, like that, then um, there's a temptation to leave, uh, you know, um, high taxes places to go to lower taxes places. So that would be one thing. Um, second thing I would say is um, somehow like just making it more visible, you know, like probably like talking more about the success cases of, of, of tech companies in, in the city. I think that when you have a successful tech company, the, the most important thing, in my opinion, and that's how we measure success uh, for our teams, is the number of people that are working at successful tech company that then go on to make other tech companies, you know, because right. it creates like this rippling effect that can really change the face of a, of a, of a city, of a region, of a country. So making it visible and you know making more examples of that and, and and celebrating the successes i think would be would be incredible and i mean to some degree there there is that effect you know when when people go public and so on that always happens in new york yep. but still at a more granular level and maybe like smaller level it would also be important yeah so y- you obviously i think have a really unique vantage point onto innovation because you are a startup You've had other startups. You lend money to startups. I mean, I think you you probably see this playing field from about as wide of a perspective as anybody. So, give me your thoughts on kind of the state of innovation today. Are, are, are we are you seeing things that you find really exciting and meaningful, or do you feel like everything's just sort of a variation on the same theme of smoothie delivery or ride sharing? <laughs> no, no, we, we we are seeing we are seeing uh, innovation. In fact, like we're also seeing those companies that you say, um, but we like the degree to which we can work with those companies is a bit limited because they're not that heavy in software; they're more heavy in, in ops, right? So, so it makes it harder for for a company like Altis to work with them. But what we're seeing is. Um, of course, you know, like during the pandemic, we saw a ton of companies that just facilitated remote work and remote collaboration, and and we saw astronomical you know growth rates that you know are, are probably going to be um, hard to see moving forward unless you know something similar happens. So that was one thing. So a lot of communication, collaboration, uh, and now what we're seeing, which is really interesting, is we're seeing. Um, a lot of hybrid software companies, you know, hybrid, I mean, software and services that are basically multiplying by orders of magnitude, the efficiency of an industry, right? So for example, companies, let's say in the appraisal space that with a software tool can make an, you know, an, 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 a, real, a real estate appraiser go from being able to evaluate one property per day to evaluating nine properties per day, right? So then what you're seeing is software companies that are solving verticalized problems um, and then start with a TAM, but then as they start solving more and more problems to the same type of companies or consumers, then the TAMs just, 
you know, like stack one on top of each other. And, and, and that's fascinating to see and also really, really sticky. And, and given, given that you guys have a team in Europe, and obviously that, that's your original perspective, how would you compare and contrast the, the U.S. kind of innovation market compared to that in the EU? Well, sadly, as a European, I have to admit that uh, the U.S. has has the dominant position both in you know size of companies and also in, in the creativity of companies. So what you see a lot in, in Europe is um, comp- local companies trying to you know adapt or, or like you know like have a slightly different flavor of a successful company in the U.S. Right. So so. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, other companies like Spotify, I mean, have been able to create a, a category themselves yep. out of Europe. But a lot of the best companies in Europe are just replicating something that was working really well in the U.S. And they did it in Europe before the U.S. company could could cross overseas. Yep. And I mean, that's one form of, of, of um, innovation. But I hope that, you know, eventually um, there will be new business models, new ideas, like net new ideas coming up. in. Right. Right, more organic, more creative. So, yeah. so, so, why is it this way? What's happening in Europe? What are they getting wrong in their public education or, or culture or whatever else that doesn't inspire the same kind of innovation? I think there's a little bit of, um, well, I, I think there's a little bit more of a culture of working for large companies, you know, or, or it has been for the last like 40, 30 years, you know, where people would just go to a company and, and, and work there. And the measure of success was how high you got in a big company, right? In a big multinational. Um, and then also, I think that it's just a matter of um, fragmentation of talent, of opportunities, of, of um, you know, technology stacks, because, you know, there's different languages and slightly different regulation and things like that. So, so yeah, that's, you know, when, when there's more barriers and, and uh, smaller TAMs, yeah. You know, to create a company, that also means that, you know, you're, you're, it just gets harder to find something that, you know, if you execute to the max will make an amazing, um, an amazing outcome. So it's just sometimes it's easier to just say, okay, I'm going to do the Uber for, for Europe. And instead yeah. of making a $70 billion company, you know, the most you can, you can aspire to is like an $8 billion company, right? So right, right. it's an order of money too smaller. Right, which then depresses VC investment to a certain extent because it doesn't feel like you can hit the same kind of home runs uh, as you can in the U.S. I know you guys have been hiring people like crazy, and we're in this sort of hyper-competitive environment for hiring talent right now. Um, what's it been like, and what have you learned from it? Yeah, it's 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 crazy, right? It's crazy. Like, we, and the the thing that we're seeing is that every single candidate has multiple offers, right? So you not only have to to be there and you know be as fast as the best. You also have to be, you know, very compelling. Um, I think that, you know, you can choose to, to, to fight in, in, let's say, in, with blunt tools, and that would be things like compensation and just compensation, or you can choose to, to also fight with um, more nuanced tools, like and, and sharper tools, more finer tools like right. culture, mission, and responsibility. So, you know, one thing that we've done is. Just on the one hand, make everybody an owner significantly. So everybody has a ton of stock options, which, you know, aligns everybody with the mission of the business. Mm-hmm. And then we are um, constantly giving people more responsibility, you know, and if they are performing, like give them just more ownership, a bigger mission, a bigger scope, because then like you, you, you really see that if you can give somebody amazing, a lot of ownership, a lot of accountability, a lot of space, 
they are going to be one very very satisfied with what they're doing and very excited and then also the the performance and, and what they can build is is incredible yeah i mean the only thing probably even more competitive right now than fintech is is crypto specifically <laughs> a, a, a student of mine told me she was offered by a, a crypto company i won't i won't name who it is um half a million dollars as a starting operational salary so there was no options or equity so you know it, you have to balance it out but like they are literally throwing incredible amounts of money out of people um mm -hmm. just to get the talent they need wow yeah yeah exactly and crypto is even more because on the one hand, there's almost like a land grab opportunity. A lot of companies that can make a lot of money very quickly, and but you don't know for, for how long, so you almost like have to capture the opportunity. And then there's also not enough talent. I was looking the other day at the amount of developers that are proficient in the different, you know, like crypto technologies, and it's still a really, really shallow pool. So then when you have, when you can raise a lot of money through VC or through, you know, selling tokens or, or coins or whatever, um, you have a lot of money and there's not enough talent. You just, it's really, a, you know, a bit of, a, a bit in war to, to get those people through the door. All right. Last question. Um, so when you're in New York, what do you most miss, miss most about Madrid? And when you're in Madrid, what do you miss most about New York? <laughs> uh, so when I'm in, in New York, what I miss most about Madrid is the weather, you know, and yeah. the, the long days and, and also the people really like to get together and, and, and relax, you know, on, on, on the weekends. Um, when I'm in Madrid, what I miss most about New York is that, again, if I went to Madrid, let's say on a, on a Thursday after two years of not having been there, I would know exactly where to find my friends because, you know, everything kind of goes slower. Yeah. And in New York, the pace of innovation, the pace of, you know, hustle of progress, it's, it's in parallel, right? So it would be the best combination would be to build a career in, in New York and then retire somewhere in Spain. Yeah, or, or spend your winters in, in Madrid or somewhere in yeah. Spain and, and then come exactly. back for the, the warmer months here. So, Miguel, <laughs> if uh, if founders listening to this podcast want to reach out to CapChase uh, about working together, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, just feel free to send me an email at miguel at capchase.com. So M-I-G-U-E-L at capchase.com. And I'd be more than happy to, to walk them through the different options. Fantastic. Miguel Fernandez, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Bradley.